Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Bo this morning, which puts us, because we are reading the third year in the triennial cycle, we're in the final third of every Parsha, and that puts us at chapter 12, verse 29. This is not unfamiliar material to most of us, but we're going to, as usual, hold it in a little bit different context uh, than we normally do. So let's start at 1229. In the middle of the night, Yudhe struck down all the male firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the cattle. And Pharaoh arose in the night with all his courtiers and all the Egyptians because there was a loud cry in Egypt for there was no house where there was not someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron in the night and said, Up, depart from among my people, you and the Israelites with you. Go worship Yudhe as you have said. Take also your flocks and your herds, as you said, and be gone. And may you bring a blessing upon me also. All right. So we are uh, familiar with this from our, of course, telling of this story every year. So, Bachetzi uh, Alayla, in the middle of the night, God struck down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from Pharaoh, right, all the way down to folks in the dungeon. So Pharaoh now has the indignity of needing to get up in the middle of the night to go deal with Moshe and Yudhe right? So this is an indignity for the ruler right, of the most powerful empire in the ancient world to have to like, get up in his jammies right, and be disrupted and have to go deal with Moshe and this Yudhe business. So of course, if Pharaoh gets up, everybody gets up all the courtiers, right, and all of Egypt, because now what's happening in Egypt is people are starting to discover that someone in that house, the firstborn in every house, has died. And so there starts to be a huge wailing, right, in Egypt, for there was no house where there was not someone dead. Because if you have children, then your firstborn dies. If you don't have children and you're a firstborn, you die. God summons Moses and Aaron in the night and set up. So Pharaoh summons Moshe and Aaron and says, up, kumu, get up, tzu, go, mitoch ami, from amongst, right, my people, my nation, gamatem, y'all, b'nei Israel, the people of Israel. This is the first time we see the people identified as b'nei Israel after the opening of our story with they were in captivity, right? So our whole book of Exodus opens with that. This is the, the next time we see them identified as B'nai Yisrael is when they're going out from slavery, when they're about to be um, redeemed. Uh, huh? Can we assume that the Egyptians Don't know. What what matters to us is that we have the story in Hebrew, so we often try to get inside the mind of the biblical authors, right? Asking why they use the language they use. Moshe speaks fluent Egyptian. It's possible they're speaking through interpreters, but Moshe Moshe could speak directly to Pharaoh if Moshe wanted. Um, Presumably, God speaks to Moshe in Hebrew. Right. <laughs> Aristotle said it was Greek. Hmm? You what? They all probably speak pidgin Egyptian. There you go. There you go. Unlikely um, the Pharaoh spoke Hebrew. Unlikely the Pharaoh spoke Hebrew. Unlikely Pharaoh would speak on Pharaoh's behalph anyway. Pharaoh, mm. Pharaoh would make proclamation. You know, you know how it is. Like we hereby, you know, whatever. There. Uh, so get get up, right, and go. You right and. B'nai Yisrael, and so y'all, Moshe and Aaron, and B'nai Yisrael, the people of Israel. And what are they, what, what does Pharaoh think they're going to do? L'chu, go, Eve do et yud right? 
Go serve Yud Hey Vav Hey, as you said. When did when did they say? They kept on saying it all the time. That was why they said they wanted to leave. So that that was the grounds for which they were going to leave Egypt was to go worship God in the desert for how long? Three days. Three days, and then they would come back. That is what Pharaoh's laboring under, is the impression that they are going to the <laughs> desert to worship Yudhei for three days, and they will return. Is the word Evdu uh, related to Eved? Of course. S- slave? Of, yeah. of course. Yeah. Eved is slave. Eved is also... Servant. 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 So it is the same as in English. Sl- servant can either be a lowly mm-hmm. status or you are a servant of the Holy One. It is the same exact relationship in Hebrew. So Eved, of course, the, the biblical authors are playing on the obvious right connection here between Eved as slave and Eved as servant, the distinction being that in Pharaoh's mind, they are Avadim. <laughs> Avadim hainu, hainu, good, everybody knows it, excellent, everybody together. Ata b'nei chorin, now we are b'nei chorin. Instead, b'nei Yisrael, b'nei chorin, chorin means free, so we are free people. Free people, right? Um, exactly. So avadim, slaves. Pharaoh perceives them to be avadim in one sense. And of course, what we're seeing now is that they are being redeemed, that they may be avadim to the Holy One. Yes. Isn't avodah also used as prayer to God? Well, but of course, because it's the same, same exact thing. Eved is the person doing it. Avodah is the service that one performs as an eved. So we say, are you coming to Friday night services? Mm-hmm. So avodah is both work and it is also service, religious mm-hmm. service. Right? So absolutely. All related, all connected. And that's the play here. Right? Pharaoh says, right, you avadim, you slaves, okay, go evdu, serve your God. But then come back. But there's also a question, because Pharaoh was considered God in Egypt, that now they're going to serve a different God in a different way. But that's not a problem, usually. That's not a problem. You can serve Pharaoh as God and Ra and Isis and Asherah. You you can have as many gods as you want. It's not a problem for Pharaoh that they're going to go worship Yudhei Like it, There was was no monotheism. Mm Well, there was. That's a longer story. I thought Akhenaten and whatever, but um, but there was a one episode of monotheism briefly in Egypt. Um, but uh, but in general, and it didn't last long because the priests and priestesses were very upset that their gods were being subsumed into Ra um, in the, in Egyptian monotheism, and so it didn't last. Were they influenced by the Hebrews? Ah, ha, ha, ha. So read Freud on Moses. Um, <coughs> So there's, there's theories, there are theories that tie Hebrew monotheism to Egyptian monotheism, that Moshe was raised in the palace, possibly had a connection to the monotheistic push, tendency, whatever, and has to leave when that fails, but carries that idea out into Right, another situation. So I love flirting with that idea. I think it's very powerful. If you read Karen Armstrong, um, the former nun, you know, the theologian, she, you know, she says that there that monotheism evolved because it was a, a, it was a critical time in human religious evolution, and it was time for that idea to come on the scene, and it starts kind of in lots of different. Places, the most famous of which is Israelite monotheism, um, but that, that it was the um, the axial age is what she calls it. Which book is that? Is that I want to say it's the axial age. She wrote a book called History. Of, is it History of God? Right. I think it's called. Yes, yeah. but I'm not sure this idea is oh. there. 
Um, but she calls it the axial age, that enough things were coming together and coalescing all over the world you know, to start this, this idea of pulling all those polytheistic expressions of divinity into one God. So it's... Um, my, my Egyptian isn't good enough to make a case in terms of my, my knowledge of the dynasties. And, you know, there's the Hyksos, and they invade, and some people... I mean, I think that's an interesting thing, too, the Hyksos. Maybe there's some connection. I, so I, I, if I do a PhD, that's, that's where I would focus. And if you ever hear the letters PhD come out of my mouth, take me outside and beat me until I come to my senses. Um, but, if, but if I were to flirt with an idea enough to write a dissertation, that would probably be it. Uh, okay. So, and, and also Karen Armstrong thinks we're headed towards another axial age. That we're, we're coming up on another axial age. That we're starting to get it we're starting to evolve like in lots of different pockets all over the world. Ideas are starting to evolve and coalesce and, and there's going to be another big rupture in how we think about things and I hope she's right. I, I hope so. I sometimes worry that we would love to just stick our heads back in the sand. Um, but yeah, I mean, because what she means is not a bad thing. Right. What she means is, you know, maybe we're starting to get it, like our relationship to the planet, our relationship to the cosmos. It's all one. We're all connected. I mean, religions obviously have always had these underpinnings and and urges and understandings and hints. Of course, this axial age doesn't the one we're talking about of monotheism doesn't come out of nowhere. Right. But um, so I'm not suggesting it's something completely new. But it is, um, it is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. But to have that vision of we're coming to a place where we're going to get it differently, and it's going to manifest differently, and it's going to look really different. Um, there's Another some folks who, who hope that we're on the cusp of that. An, an evolutionary step. Yes, a jump, right? So mm-hmm. often evolution doesn't happen steadily, like right. right? Evolution... You have a rupture or a mutation, you know, or something, and and then things stay the same for a while, and then boom, something else happens, and then boom, something else happens. Same with language, um, and so in her terms, she's talking about theologically the same thing that slowly, 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 you know, things kind of move, and then boom, there's a big. Does evolution ever go backwards? Well, we you, <laughs> one one. <laughs> Sorry, we're not allowed to talk politics. I, no, I mean, you don't even have to just talk politics. Where I come from, it's like one more generation. Their ass is going to be on the sides of their head, right? Like there, you know, there, some places it's like, yeah, we're moving back. But um, so we we already use language that tends to be value laden when we say forwards and backwards. Evolution just is. Right. It just. It no, it can't. No it, it, it's, there isn't forwards and backwards. So remember the moth that when it, it was a it was a black moth and it, w- and it was a white moth and it was doing very very well. And then they brought in um, factories and the smoke turned all the birch trees black. So now all the white moths got eaten up quickly because they were picked off by the birds because the birds could see them. Now what happens? Those die. You know, you have a genetic favor for. Black moths, so that whole species becomes black within a certain amount of time, right? If you clean up the environment and the trees become white again, right, then they, the white moths would be better off again. So it isn't that the, right, moving to black wasn't moving ahead. It was moving to meet the new circumstances. And if those circumstances changed back, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a backward step to become white again or whatever it is. You know, like, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's a, yes. There's no value. Exactly. To the change, it's just a mutation, mm-hmm. and it's about which mutations help people survive and thrive uh, in the current environment. So I think we just have to be careful about using yes. like judgy language around yeah around evolution. Although I think theologically, I would use value language in this case. In this case, because I think that's what religion is about is values, right? And I do, yeah. I do pray. I hope that we are evolving in terms of a higher consciousness, a higher sense of responsibility for each other, for the planet. You know, for, I, I hope that's what's happening, right? Judaism, 
pagan religion did this. Pagan religion just went in a circle, mm-hmm. in a cycle. You did the rituals that you did every year. So it's springtime, it's time to do the lambing stuff. It's winter, it's time to do the, the king dies stuff. It's spring, the king rises, right? So you do all the rituals over and over and over and over and over because everything is cyclical and everything happens the same all the time. Totally Judaism, Israelite religion is, the, is one of the first to challenge the pagan notion of it just all keeps going like this and your job is to keep it going in a good way for you. Israelite religion punctures the circle and opens it up to be able to spiral upward. Right? We are moving in Torah's mind towards, towards. the messianic age. We don't just go through spring because it's spring. We go, through, we go through the fall festivals, going through those rituals to make us better people so that we can then elevate ourselves, our family, our communities, our whatever, so that we move everything upward towards right, salvation. That's a new idea. Like, that's a new idea, but, but I, I buy it. I, I, I hope and pray that's what's actually happening to humanity as well, right? That we're not just, spir- that we're, we're moving mm-hmm. in a direction, whereas evolution, biological evolution might just kind of be, you know, responding to circumstances, responding to circumstances, whatever those circumstances are. I like to believe that religion is all about consciously wanting to, to yes, go through similar cycles all the time, of course, but with a mission to raise our to elevate our consciousness well the, the cycles are the roots and the advancement are the wings there you go there you go we need roots and we need wings until my daughter's 18 then I'm getting out the scissors <laughs> clip the wings clip those wings alright so 32 take your flocks 32 so take your flocks and your herds, as you said, and be gone. And why do they need flocks and herds? They can eat. Sacrifice? <laughs> sacrifice. They have to take their flocks and herds. How are they going to worship? How are they going to eve do yud hey if they don't have animal sacrifice? Um, and be gone. Right? L'chu. Um, and... Very interesting closing here by Pharaoh. Totally. And bless me also. Either this is Pharaoh being completely mortified, right, and is asking now Moshe for a bracha, or else Pharaoh saying, Because I've let you go out there to worship you at Hebavhe. Make sure you mention that. <laughs> Put in a good word. Put in a good word. With Pharaoh. With well, your Because the only reason you're out there is because I let you go. Yeah. Right? So, st- so some want to say, okay, he's completely humiliated. Other people want to say, he's still Pharaoh. No. He doesn't even get it that it's your Buffet who caused the slaying of the firstborn. And that's why he's sending them out. Right? He still won't own that. He's still saying, it's me. I'm in charge. I'm in control. I have all the power. Saving face. Saving face. What is the sense? Or just, or deluded. Right? Some people tell lies and and spin everything because they're saving face. Other people really believe the things that they're saying are true. You pick, right? Either way. What is is the sense of blessing here? It's a verachtem, which... You know, it's connected it, with Baruch? Yeah, the same yeah, of route. course, of course, yeah. yeah. So, so most likely, you know, while you're doing your rituals, mm-hmm. well, do something that, you know, that brings me some good juju. Mm-hmm. The elephant in the room is um, the morality of slaying the firstborn Absolutely. across the board. I mean, we, we've Absolutely. cleverly skipped over that. Oh, no, we're not. We're not going to. We're here. We're not going to. It's happening right here. Okay, just so... Yeah, uh, we're not going to. All right. The Egyptian... Okay, no, sorry. I didn't read that yet. The the Egyptians urged the people on, impatient to have them leave the country, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders. The Israelites had done Moses' bidding and borrowed from the Egyptians, borrowed in air quotes, borrowed from the Egyptians... 
objects of silver and gold and clothing. And Yudhe had disposed the Egyptians favorably toward the people, and they let them have their request. Thus they stripped the Egyptians. All right, so remember all of this when we get to the book of Exit, the later book of Exodus and Leviticus, when you all say to me, Blue dye? Where did they get crimson and blue? (laughs) Right here. (laughs) Where did they have gold? They were slaves. Right here. They leave with great wealth. They leave Egypt with great wealth. All right, so let's look at it. So the the Egyptians, what is the verb here used in 33? The first word of verse 33, what's the Hebrew? So Mitraim Tichazekt on the people, meaning on the Jews. What's Chazak? It's strength, isn't it? Strong. Strong. So what's this verb? They pushed them. <laughs> pushed them out. Like, what, what does your English say? Urged. Urged. Stronger. Mitzrayim al ha'am. Right? The, this is chazak. This is, right? This is about power and strength. It's also the word used of Pharaoh's heart. Oh, right. There's two words used about his heart. Kaved and chazak. God strengthens Pharaoh's heart. That is the word used here. That is not an accident. Right? So the hardening of Pharaoh's heart has led to his people hardening against the Israelites or doing something out of that. The consequence of his chazak, his heart that was chazak, is that they now techazek on the Israelites that they should hurry in their goats getting sent out from the land mm-hmm. because they say essentially lest we all, we all die so they knew that it was the Israelites kind of causing this. so it seems clear that the Egyptians lay this right at the feet of Moses and Aaron or the people or whatever they want these Israelites gone because they are sure it's going to mean something not good yes it seems like it would be a very chaotic night like, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like not a rational you know so let's go there. So lest we all die, right? There's a, there's somebody dead in every house. Everybody's freaking out. Everybody's grieving. Nobody knows what's happening. What they know is that they've just they've gone through nine other plagues. And and I know we read it, Dam, Tzadea, Kinim, Aov, and we go through them like this. It was probably over a year. If you look at each of the plagues, and we've done this before, and what we think naturally it was tied to that they exaggerate to make it the plague story, probably it's over a year. So the Egyptians have had it. Remember, the Egyptians are saying to Pharaoh, the courtiers are saying to Pharaoh, what are you doing? Let them go. What's the, what's the matter with you? So the Egyptians have been seeing it for a long time that this Israelite, you have a business, whatever it is, it's not good for Egypt. Get rid of them. Get them gone. And now it's the last straw. Now it's their, their firstborn has just died. Everybody's firstborn has just died. So they were like, get these people out of here. And... So the people took their, so the Israelites have to grab what they have. But remember, what did they do last night? Put the blood in the. Well, they prepared. They got their. their, You shall eat it with your loins girded and your backpack on your back. They're ready. They're ready to go. All right. And they were eating matzah at that meal last night, right? So they take their dough that has not risen, and they, it, it, it's in the kneading bowls where you would let dough normally rise, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Uh, rise, and they wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders. Where the heck did they get cloaks from? 
Wasn't that the, the single unit of clothing? I mean, it was Egyptian closets. So one theory is they get it out of the Egyptian closets. Because if you look at slaves, how they're depicted, they are wearing a loincloth and are naked from the top up. That they would not have owned cloaks as slaves. So they borrowed them? They, they were borrowed borrowing them? the cloaks. Oh, okay. But in any case, they wrap their, right, their dough and their kneading bowl in their cloaks and put it right on their shoulders. That's how you carry stuff in the ancient Near East. The Israelites had done Moses' bidding and had borrowed. So this is where the rabbis say they had borrowed <laughs> cloaks and um, objects of silver and gold and clothing. All right, so the, the argument, of course, is over the translation of the word borrow. <laughs> the origin of the word borrow in an English translation is the King James Version. That's where most people get borrow. Because what is the Hebrew? Rita? What's the Hebrew? What's the verb? Huh? No. What's the Hebrew? Aha! Exactly. The Hebrew is from the root? Question. Ask. Sha'al. Ask. <coughs> ask, or in this case, a better translation might be request. So, Sha'al. Sha'al as ask or request. There's many attestations in the Tanakh to Sha'al being to ask, meaning, may I please have some milk? You know, the children ask for milk. Sha'alu, it's the same exact word. And lishol is to question, to ask, to request. That's, that's modern Hebrew, right? So it's well attested that Sha'al means ask. It is also attested in the Tanakh that Sha'al means to borrow. So the question is, as usual, which translation makes more sense in this instance? What's the problem with borrow? They'd have to give it back. <laughs> All right, what's the problem with that? And the Egyptians would have to be real stupid. <laughs> so one is that it doesn't make any sense in terms of the Egyptians going, oh, sure, yeah, I'll get it from you next week. Right, that, can I borrow a Band-Aid? Right, so, so on the one hand, it doesn't seem to make sense that they would ask the Egyptians in terms of borrowing. What's the other problem with borrow for Jews? It's misleading. They, it's misleading. It's corrupt. You're saying I'm going to borrow, and they had no intention of giving it back. It's a fear it's of anti-Semitism right. being used. This being used for anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. Those lying Jews. <laughs> this is what they do. They'll take your money. They'll take your stuff. Right in business and in other places, you cannot trust them. This is what they do from the beginning. We're going to borrow money from the Egyptians. Yeah, right. Right? So, this, so the translation becomes morally, I know we got a problem with the first part. I know that. Um, we have a moral issue there and the, and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. I know we got lots of moral issues going on. But this is one of them, that how you translate borrow. So a lot of people want to translate it as ask because that's straightforward. And it says, and God predisposed the Egyptians to generosity, to giving them stuff, right? And it, that's not even a stretch to me. First of all, it's a miracle that God made that happen, that the Egyptians were well disposed to give them stuff. Okay, I can buy that. We got a lot of other miracles going on here. Why not that one? But, but if you think about it, if you really think the people around you are a danger to you and you want them gone, if someone breaks into my house and I'm really concerned for my daughter's safety, what do you do? Take this. Take this. Take this and go. Weren't we trained? If you get someone's going to mug you, you take out your money. You throw it in that direction and you run screaming fire in the other direction. Take it. Because all of a sudden, it doesn't matter. It, the stuff doesn't matter. Get out of here because you are bringing catastrophe to our personal lives. Richard? So there was a challenge to there was a challenge to one of our great sages uh, in the early Christian era of what, what was it called and the what? It was a 
Yes, there was a disputation. And one of our sages, they, they said this was the disputation brought against the rabbi. It says, borrow, you were going to borrow from the Egyptians. You actually stole it. So you owe Egypt, essentially, and this is in, in the time of Alexander. The Egyptians, not, it was not just a disputation. It was, um, you, you owe us for all the tons of gold and silver that you borrowed and never returned. And the, the great sage said, well, as soon as you pay the back wages and interest on the back wages to the 600,000 slaves that you had for 430 years, we'll talk about borrowing. Right, so, that, so, it's, so it's an old rabbinic justification of this, that yes, they, Egypt had benefited from the slave labor of the Israelites for 430 years. I personally think that's a later defense because slavery was just a part of the ancient world. Right? You, you didn't owe slaves wages. Right. Slaves didn't earn wages. Like, that's a, for me, that's just a later well, concept. Exactly, and so I don't think so. I know that Great Sage used that, but but I think it's later than than the folks creating these texts. You don't owe slaves wages. You but but in Deuteronomy we do see that when you the law is when you set. We talked about this with Hagar. When you free a slave, you must free them with food and water and provisions and whatever. You can't. You can't send them away with nothing. So there is a basis for understanding that legally you owe slaves something as you send them out. And this word borrow, not to dwell on it, but if they were only going for three days, that, that, that on that thread, that verb kind of backs up that particular part of the story. For the Egyptians. Yes. Not for the Israelites. Yes. Right. So it doesn't get us away from the moral right. challenge of them saying borrow when they aren't going to be right. coming exactly. back. In the next sentence, just the first section, it says, God disposed favorably toward Israel and let them have their request. Yeah. Yeah. Thus they stripped the Egyptians. Yeah. Yeah. Word stripped. Uh huh. Here it says, let them have their request. We go to the. Um, I think it's non-judgmental language. I think we we use that term in a derogatory way. I'm, I don't think that's what's meant here. I, I don't know the Hebrew root well enough. By Natslu, I don't know. And my, I don't have any notes on it, so I don't know. I'd have to, I have to look up the word. I'll, next week, remind me. I mean, when we're together, remind me. I'll go get my dictionary in my office, and we'll sit together and look at that word. Yes. So there's a brand new translation of the Torah, three volumes. We have it at home. So now I'm curious to go back. Go home. Do it. That, that's exactly right. That I have four or five right that I look at. Can somebody get me a tissue or the box of tissues? Oh, you just borrow. Can I borrow? Yeah, I'd like to borrow a tissue. <laughs> Don't give me that. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I mean, how many times do we in life say things like that? You know, can I borrow that? That can I borrow yeah. a tissue? And you no, know, you're like, it's not really borrow. But we don't say it relative. Can I borrow your? Gold, your diamond ring. <laughs> it's generally things like a cup but, of sugar. But but we but we do we do confuse borrow and request, yeah. right? And and often it's because we feel it's bold to request something, right? In other words, why why would we say borrow instead of well instead of request because. It's because we're uncomfortable asking to keep something, to take something from somebody. That's what I think anyway. I think linguistically it comes out of our discomfort with taking from somebody. Could it be that in the, in the mindset, the mental mindset of being a slave for so many years that you, you can't own that kind of thing? Right. So nice. So it's maybe complicated for the Israelites. Right. That they, don't, they can't say give me. Right. 
Right. They're like, can I borrow? <laughs> but <laughs> even that, though, I think, like, like Bert said, can I borrow your diamond earrings? Like, I, you know, it feels like pushing it a little. But yeah, but possibly they have a, a difficult relationship to, to taking stuff or owning stuff, okay? So, go on. Oh, uh, the Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot aside from dependents. Moreover, a mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had taken out of Egypt, for it was not leavened since they had been driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Okay, so we have 600,000 men aside from children, and the women aren't even mentioned. If you do the math, I don't do well at math, but Mm -hmm. I read enough commentary to know that you're talking about over 2 million people. Mm -hmm. Unlikely that that is the case. Um, If you look at ancient Egypt, 2 million people as a portion, it's just not numbers that would be supported in the ancient world. So as usual, we have to challenge the the common understanding of Elif. Elif, yes, means a thousand, but not only a thousand. It can mean uh, a unit. A troop. Uh, like tr- uh, a in troop military terms. Unit. Right? So it, most likely 600 units went out. But even that, like we, as we've discussed before, I don't want to belabor it in here because we want to go to some other troubling mm-hmm. places, um, uh, is, is, is a huge amount, right? So it's... Um, so. I'm not, I'm not pointing to the historicity of LF meaning a unit. I'm saying I don't think it would have been understood or translated as 600,000 men. It would have been translated and understood as 600 units. And even that, of course, is mythology, but, but list, let's at least be accurate about the mythology. But, but on the other side of that, Egypt was a large, populous country. So how many, I mean, has somebody sort of tried to figure it out yes. in reverse? And like how, how large a slave population yes. would you need to support a country that big? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, and they say two, two, over two million is just not, it, it doesn't match. It's yeah, a too big a stretch. And who was the heir of Rob? Ah, so <laughs> let's go there. It's one of Rabbi Stephen Karubin's favorite lines of Torah. Vigam erev Rav Allah itam. And so did an Erev Rav go up with them. So what does that mean? The translation is mixed multitude. Other okay. folk? <laughs> so there's lots of conversation in the literature about who this is and what this means. For the rabbis, who's it going to be? Come on. Think like a rabbi. Who? Think about our rabbis defending these stories in these texts. What's the era of Rav? Yo, it's the converts. Oh, the converts. Unbelievable. It's the proselytes. Who loved the Israelites so much. Who loved yud so much that they converted to Israelite monotheism, and they are now part of the people of Israel. Were they protected from the slaying of the firstborn? Who? The proselytes. Only people who put the blood. Right. So the, so the question is, if you're um, converted and your firstborn dies, uh, you're going to be less inclined to be going out. So then we would assume, Israel. no, they didn't. Mm-hmm. You, we can assume whatever we want. Either... They see what happens, and they're like, we're with that guy. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. No matter what happened in your house, you're like, especially if it happened in my house, I'm out of here. I'm going with that guy, if they'll have me. Um, or you say, forget it. Like, if that's what that God's about, that's too troubling or scary or whatever. Erev Rav, like, so... I think mine also translates the mixed multitude. Some scholars want to suggest it is not two words... That it is this word. Erevrav. Think. We have an we have a it's onomatopoeia or no. What is it? What is that called? When you when it sounds like alliteration? Riffraff. Oh, yes. Erevrav is riffraff. 
right? It's on a monophia. So, you know, it sounds like what it is, the riffraff, the others, you know, the... Camp followers. Huh? Camp followers. The camp followers, right? The air bomb. So that's one interpretation. Um, but it is very clear, however you interpret this, that not only Israelites left Egypt. That the group, this is why Stephen loves this text, the group that stood at Sinai that accepted the Torah included the Arab Rav. It included the riffraff. Now, of course, the rabbis want to say, and those are the ones that instigated that whole golden calf business. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. <laughs> That's all over rabbinic literature. How did that happen? The riffraff were still idolaters at heart, and they were the ones, you know, whipping up the, the dancing that, that happened. We'll say dancing. Um, and... And so it was a problem, but we, of course, lots of us, love to point to this text to say, from the beginning, from Sinai, we have been a combination of not just people who descended from Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. That has never been our self-understanding ever. It's whoever stands at Sinai and says, Naase Venishma, we will do it, and then we'll hear more about it. But it's also- even before then, there were wives who were not, you know, who were Midianite priestesses and whatever. Like Moses' so wives? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, this, so this whole, this whole idea really was there from way before. Mm-hmm. And they're yeah. problematic too, those wives. Right, those women. Those are, they're problematic. The Midianite women led the Israelites astray at... Balsaphon. The rabbis like to have it both ways. Yes. <laughs> They're cake and eat too. Indeed. Don't we all? All right. So, um, all right. So our era of Rav comes out with them. I want to make sure. How, do, how does it happen that we are, we only have 15 minutes. Uh, all right. So go to, um, go to 43, Bert. yud said to Moses and Aaron, this is the law of the Passover offering. No foreigner shall eat of it. But any householder's purchased male slave may eat of it once he has been circumcised. No bound or hired laborer shall eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break a bone of it. The whole community of Israel shall offer it. If a male stranger who dwells with you would offer the Passover to yod all his males must be circumcised. Then he shall be admitted to offer it. He shall then be as a citizen of the country, but no uncircumcised man may eat of it. There shall be one law for the citizen and for the stranger who dwells among them, among you. Go on. Uh, and all the Israelites. And all oh, the Israelites among you, did I'm so. Sorry. And, and all the Israelites did so as Yudhevav had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. That very day, Yudhevav freed the Israelites from the land of Egypt. Troop by troop. Okay. Now, just to keep me honest, so we have a couple of things going on here. We have, according to most scholars who are not defending this as the literal truth Mm -hmm. and as revealed Torah by God, so those scholars have a much different agenda, and they have a different interpretation. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to pretend that, that there isn't a vast literature apologizing for all of this. That's not where we usually go. That's not how I teach. So let's look at what's going on here in terms of this crazy combination of stuff. We have death coming to whom? And often that is... male thought of as babies or children. It could be firstborn, could be... Uh, of course, of course. But let's just stay with... The firstborn is, is talking about an infant. I'm not saying they don't grow up and die in the plague. I'm saying birth. The first birth. The first infant, whatever age they are when this happens, it's about death to that baby. Is it male only? Correct, yeah. Uh, to, yes, because that's who's counted as the Bechor. And that, and that relates very much to how this whole thing started right. with Pharaoh. Yeah, okay, stop. Right. So, okay, ten minutes. 
is. Okay, so the death above of people's child, their first issue of the womb, which we're going to also, it's going to also tie to the firstborn, the issue of your womb, the peta rechem, the one who breaks through the womb, meaning first, right, is now sanctified forever to God. It's, it's chapter 13. I don't know that we're going to get there, but trust me. Chapter 13 says, and so because of this, the firstborn are kadosh. They are set aside for me. Says God. All right, death of babies. What is defense against the death of babies in your house? Before the Israelites, in pagan religion in Mesopotamia, any guesses? The defense of it? What? How do you defend against death coming? It was a common fear of death coming for your baby. Half the babies died. It was a very common thing to have to figure out how do we protect against the destroyer. And blood is life. How do we protect against the mashchit? That's what's used here, the mashchit. Well, or when we get to the, you know, the actual business. The destroyer. How do the Israelites keep the destroyer from coming in to take their firstborn and kill it? They put blood on the lintel. You put apotropaic, you put warding at the entrance, at the liminal place between our home and the world. Because that's where the destroyer's coming in, is the doorway, is the opening. So you put the life force, you put blood on the thing to stop the destroyer coming in. It is very pagan. This is a pagan ritual. Some believe, why is it lamb's blood? Because this was a ritual done in the spring, when, and, and the times you moved your flocks and they were vulnerable, you needed to protect against the weak of your flock, the vulnerable of your flock, being attacked by a demon, right? Or some kind of, you know, other destroyer. And so, you, of course, if you're protecting lambs, what are you going to use on the, to protect them? You're going to use lamb's blood. Yeah. Of course. Amy, are these only male lambs? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Is blood considered um, a sacrifice in a way here? Or the opposite? So, I, we're putting our relationship to sacrifice on all of this. What I want to say is sacrifice is part of an entire system of understanding blood as the key magical element. I'm thinking of Pinyon Haben also, the the money. That's that's different. That's different. Pinyon Haben is about the firstborn now belong to me, says God. You have to buy them back. It's nothing to do with sacrifice. The firstborn belong to God. We have to redeem them from that service with money to the synagogue. <laughs> right? So, um, so that's different. That's, that's not about sacrifice. That's about they belong to God. You have to redeem them back from, from God and from, sac- from sacral, from lives completely devoted to the sacral. You have to redeem them from that. Okay. So, so babies, death, the destroyer, these are very old rituals. And the language is used of psach. What does God do when God confronts the blood? God psachs. So we have translated that now to mean passed over, skipped those houses, right? Because we are descendants of the Israelites. 
who reconstructed this ritual to be about the going out from Egypt. If it's not about the going out from Egypt, what might Psach mean? The destroyer is blocked. There is one translation I found very interesting, which I've never read before, that is Psach can also mean, according to the book of Samuel, to be lame. And so what does that mean? So this one scholar wants to suggest that if it's something about being lame, what can't lame people do? Walk. Walk or move. So in that case, if they can't do that, and this word means lame, what does God psaching mean? God stands over the houses of the Israelites like a lame person, mm-hmm. essentially protecting the house from the evil forces. Because it's not just a destroyer. There's lots, and we have lots of attestations um, to uh, folks who um, want to destroy and kill babies. Who's our most famous in our tradition? Hitler. Oh, man. All right, I'm going to give you the Mesopotamian name, then you tell me oh. who ours is. Here's the, Mesopotam- Here's the Mesopotamian Lamashtu. Who do we have? Lilith! Oh, yeah. We have preserved within our tradition the understanding of the demoness who is created in order to take men's semen and have demon babies with them because she was denied babies. Right? So men's night emissions. Lilith takes them. She causes them. Because no good Israelite male would have those kinds of dreams on their own. God knows. So Lilith causes those dreams so that she can take the semen and have demon babies. And she is very interested in murdering human babies. Right? So one of the destroyers who comes to kill children is the evil eye. So all over the Middle East, we have the Hamsa, Keneged Ayin Hara, Kenahara, Keneged Ayin Hara, against the evil eye, awarding protective symbol to keep the evil eye out of the house, or and often it was put above the crib, to protect the baby from Lilith. But all over Mesopotamia, we have Lamashtu. So it's, it's a very early, very old, very, shall we say, patriarchal understanding of, of course there's going to be a, a demoness, right, who's jealous of your offspring and is going to come after them and... Right, the temptress, the the evil female force that you know we know how destructive that is, and how terrifying. Um, but in but in a world where half the babies died, it becomes a very serious business to make sure you're doing everything possible, right, to protect your family and to protect your infants. So, so to your original question, which I, I know it sounds like I've dodged. Originally, it's not a moral issue. Originally, all of this really is a remnant of the pagan ritual of blood on the doorway, the destroyer. Um, Also, probably one scholar that um, I'm working off of right now, um, she says that... uh, that it's also about nighttime, right? The liminal time, Dr. Christine Garraway. Um, and she says, so the liminal time of night, all this blood stuff, all the pasaching, all the baby, all the destroyer. There's also um, the, uh, uh, the machit, the malevolent deity, but there's also the cult of the ancestors where families who live together within their larger network would have offered um, sacrifice to their ancestors so that the ancestors would be bound to them and would protect them. And that that is the other thing about the Pesach. It protects the family. The Pesach is the offering. That's what it's called. 
right? The Paschal Lamb. What is Paschal? That's not even English, right? The Paschal Lamb means the Pesach. So it's the action God does, but it's really before that. That's a reconstruction. The Pesaching of God is a reconstruction of the original Pesach, which she argues is the ancient pagan family ritual of slaughtering the lamb so the ancestors will protect the family. Again, the blood that is protective, apotropaic, yeah? So that's that, the death, the blood, children, vulnerability of children, death of children, all of that has been well established and attested in Mesopotamia and in Egypt, um, but of course we're descendants of Mesopotamians, so we're the ones who would have taken those stories and reconstructed them to being about the deliverance from Egypt. So it gets laid, all of this gets laid on the story of Egypt. So well, where are we gonna put the death of babies in Egypt? We of course, to Bert's point, we of course begin with that. Moshe's life is in danger. The Hebrew babies are being drowned in the Nile. Our story begins with the death of infants. On some level, quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. Right? It's hard to say, but like that, that cause and effect. Pharaoh had the opportunity. I'm, I'm not defending it, but you want, if you're asking about the morality, Pharaoh had the opportunity. Now we have the, the Chazak and the Kaved business. That's a problem that God hardens his heart. But, but Pharaoh had the opportunity to prevent this and was given a year of, you know, testing and opportunities to, to not have this happen. I think that's, you know, the moral, if you're going to try to have a moral defense of it, I think that's where a lot of the rabbis go. And it's Pharaoh's you know, fault. Some, you know, he he triggers the, you know the cause of events that leads to now the death of the Egyptian first. Huh? Oh my God, the Lebanon War. That's all I heard. Proportional response. <laughs> Don't even get me started. Yeah, you want a proportional response? We're gonna blow up your hotels, right? Like what you know. Okay, because uh, I was there. I was in Israel. I usually don't say we, it's them, they're Israelis, I'm not, but like I was there in the hotel stairwells while the sirens were going and the bombs were falling and proportional response. Okay, Leah, let's talk about that. Because without Iron Dome, the hotel I was in would have been obliterated. As, as of many others, Iron Dome is the only reason they weren't. So you want to hit a civilian population of innocents? Okay, let's talk about proportional response to that. But anyway, that's another yeah. conversation. Uh, <laughs> All right, so um, I'm going to give you a piece to take home. Um, I thought we would get there, but this? somehow. This right here? We didn't. Um, yeah. So this is a piece by Rabbi Pamela Wax here. from the Institute of Spirituality, that uh, text study that I do every week. This was from a few years ago. And what she's talking about here is what all of this leads to. I don't think there you go. And we're going to get it in the the end of our portion that we didn't get to, what does all this lead to? What, what is it we're supposed to do with all of this? We are supposed to zachor. Remember. We are supposed to remember. And we are told three times in our par, four times in our parsha about teaching it to our children. Teaching this story to our children. And it doesn't say teaching. It doesn't use the word teaching. It says when they ask you... Why are we doing all these crazy things like eating horseradish? Who wants to eat horseradish? Right? Why are we doing all this crazy business? You will tell them why. And it's about this set of right, circumstances. And so I love that Pamela Wax says, for us as Jews, she says um, that our sacred history is not about objective fact but about lived and reenacted experience. Mm-hmm. That it really, it doesn't, facts don't matter. It's about lived and reenacted experience. Was I abused by my, I, I, it's, that's my, if that's my experience, that's what I remember. Right? Like it, 
It's not about objective fact. That's not how we treat history. As Jew- I mean, of course, as moderns t- looking at history, yes, of course. But she's saying we don't even have a word for history. We make one up called historia. <laughs> the Hebrew word for history is historia. It's not Hebrew. <laughs> it's history. So she says what we have is we have zikaron. We have memory. Not a relationship to a set of facts that happened back then to another group of people. We have zikaron. We have memory. And she quotes Dr. Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi in the second paragraph. The nature of Jewish memory is evocation, identification, and reactualization. Okay, take that in for a minute. It isn't about learning the facts of the story. Our relationship to memory is about evocation, identification, and reactualization. We eat history at Pesach. We eat maror so that we hurt. We don't just talk about it, right? We reactualize it when we drink salt water tears. Both our own tears, our own suffering, our own relationship to that, our own relationship to the way our own suffering can keep us stuck and oppressed and repressed. Because it's, it's as much about that liberation. We're always going out from Egypt if we're doing our work, right? But spiritually, the rabbis have always understood this. Don't read, you're going out, Mimi, trying. What, what do they say? Don't read, you're going out, God forbid, from Mitzrayim. What are you going out from? Slavery. Let's see, Rao. Mitzrayim. There are no vowels in the Torah. So you can read the consonants of Mitzrayim, which are, that's not very good, is it the green? Um, you can read the consonants, which are m, t, r, and then im, which is plural. That makes things plural. Mm-hmm. So m, t, r. That's all you get in the Torah. M, t, r, im, meaning plural. So the rabbis say, don't read mitz, rayim. Read me, tsarim. What is tsar? Narrow. Narrow, plural. Tsar is narrow. The im is plural. So don't read they're going out from Mitzrayim, from Egypt. They're going out Mitzarim from the narrow. I don't think so. I don't think they used tsar for Abraham. Um, but don't think the literal Egypt. Mm-hmm. Egypt is here. Yeah, right. Bo El Paro, come on to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's right here. You don't need to look very far, right? We're coming out all the time. Redemption is about coming out, Meitzarim, say the rabbis, from the narrow, the stuck, the blinded, the constricted. Redemption is always about coming out of that. And so, so, I'm not saying it just because it's clever. I'm saying it because this is really what we do with history, we are, we are needing to taste those tears so that we don't forget our own suffering, our own need to be liberated from our own slavery, our own stuckness, our own tightness. And, and she talks about it in mindfulness practice. It's about our own awareness so often being shut down and closed down. And for the Kabbalists, that's what they said. That Remember, where, where was God for 430 years? Finally, God remembers the Israelites, they give a great sa'aka finally, and God remembers the covenant. What did God forget? And so the rabbis say, yeah, even the divine consciousness was, in, was stuck. And redemption is also about bringing the divine consciousness right through us, of course, right, to, to freedom to openness, to redemption. So is 
Isn't that precisely the spiral that you're talking about? Absolutely. Thank you, Richard, for bringing it back. Yes. So we don't just do Pesach because it's spring and you got lambing and you got the matzah and you got the wheat business. It's not just that. It's that we are constantly supposed to evoke that consciousness of redemption and reenact redemption and then make it real in our own lives to identify what they were redeemed from slavery therefore because if it's me if I identify with them I was redeemed from slavery I can't take my status as a free person for granted that's least core for the Jewish people It's not remembering a nice story or even a nice idea or even something we should strive for. We have to identify and feel and evoke and and reactualize our history through memory. That memory implies action um, is all over our tradition. That it's not a passive calling to mind. Lise Cole is a, to remember, is is an Active word filled with stuff more than just you call it to mind out of your file, right? Like memory, I've been reading a lot about memory and like, you know, that how, how do you code stuff? How does your brain code memories? How do you tell from where you parked yesterday from where you parked last Wednesday? Some of us don't do that very well. Um, but, but right, we have all these ways that memories are encoded so that we can, we can know that, that, no, that's not where I parked yesterday. That's where I parked the day before. And those memories don't run together. So there's, it's not just about, okay, so I'm going to do whatever my brain has to do to pull up yesterday's parking spot memory. That's technical stuff. That is not what we mean when we say Lise Cor to remember. Lise Cor, I love how she says this, that it's about evocation, identification, and reactualization. Our work is to come out Meitzarim. That is how we are redeemed over and over again to identify where we are stuck, to identify where we are tight and closed down because that is oppressive. And then we're slaves to our habits, to our reactions, to the patterns that have been laid down. Then we're just slaves. We have no choices. The only time we can have a choice is when we come out, Meitzarim, from those narrow, stuck, tight, unconscious places bringing consciousness into closer relationship to what we would call godliness, to the divine, as enacted through us and evidenced by how we behave. And when we do that, we know what it is to be redeemed, and then we become not avadim slaves, we become avadim servants of the holy, and that is how our tradition believes this world will be transformed. Shabbat shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.